Our text, we're going to take a break from Ephesians. Our text today is going to come from John, Gospel of John, chapter 1. In verse 14, John chapter 1, verse 14, you can turn there in your copy of God's Word if you'd like. If not, please just hear. Hear the Word delivered to us in Aaron, infallible and eternally sufficient for the people of God to do the will of God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower does fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask now that as we come to the examination of your word, that we would not be so pompous as to think that we are to examine the word on our own, but that we are to be examined by your word. Lord, we want to be students of it, but not merely so that we are full of knowledge, so that we are changed into the image of your son. And so we ask now that as we open up the truth, as we open up the capital T truth preserved for us by your spirit throughout the millennia, that we would be changed by it, that we would be filled with the knowledge of you, that we would be compelled to live and to behave differently, different than our flesh and not according to it, but according to your son, that we are now able to actually follow him as those who have been redeemed by his blood, that we can read these words and obey them. And we want help in that because we have a war waging within us between the old and the new self. So Lord, would you help us? And would you use this time towards those ends? And would you glorify yourself while you build us up this afternoon? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, taking a break from Ephesians, I started thinking about what to do and got primed. I heard a sermon relatively recently and it got my thoughts kind of churning. The sermon had two points, only two points. And the two points were God loves you. Point number two, Jesus loves you. Those are the two points in the whole sermon. Now, us as snooty, reformed people hear that and go, oh, what in the world was that garbage? And for a bit of good reason, right? We've heard so many man-centered sermons, right? Where the point of that sermon is just, don't worry, you are the only thing that God cares about. He's obsessed with you. We've heard so many of those, and we've, we've heard so much of the shallow sentimentalism. You know what I mean by that? Just, just, it's just sentimentality over and over and over, and, and where it's just daddy God in the sky just can't wait to meet all of your little whims. And we've, we've, we're in the presence of a prominence of what uh, sociologists uh, have called moralistic therapeutic deism that that's the majority of what's going on in, in the Western evangelical scenario is moralistic therapeutic deism. It's not biblical Christianity because it's just be good, do good things, and good is kind of, you know, we kind of define it as we go. It's, so that's moralistic. It's therapeutic because you feel bad, and that's not okay, and we want you to feel better, and that's all that we're after. And then the sermon becomes kind of just group therapy. 
and then deism because it's really kind of generic in the sense that it's not really about the one true God of the Bible. It's not about Yahweh. It's not about the triune God of the universe. It's just there's a big, powerful figure out there. And so that tends to be the reigning thought of the day. So when a sermon comes to us that has two points, God loves you, Jesus loves you, we just scoff at it. And I found myself, and I listened to the whole thing, I found myself initially just scoffing and thinking of myself so highly and shredding it, which is always easy to do. When you're not the sermon giver, when you're not the preacher, it's easy to just absolutely shred them. We're all amazing quarterbacks when we're watching the Cowboys. Like, he was wide open the whole time. How come you didn't see him? But then you put yourself in the shoes and go, okay, wait a minute. I need to think through this. Because those two points, God loves you and Jesus loves you, I know the, the drift and the way that it would normally get pulled in 21st century American evangelicalism, but are those two things true? And that's where I had to stop and to think, are those two things true? Does God love us or does there a people that God loves? And then secondly, is there a people that Jesus loves? And then as I'm sitting there and continuing to listen to the sermon, I just have scriptures going through my mind that I go, no, well, we know that God is love from 1 John chapter 4. That is something that he is. And it's also something that he does from John chapter 3. And then we know from Ephesians chapter 1 in the study that we've been going on here at our church uh, that Jesus' love is beyond comprehension. So those things are real, but then how do we get at it from a biblically faithful perspective and not just sentimentality, not just man-centeredness, how cool is it that you're the center of God's world? Is there a way to biblically understand that? And that's this, this time of year where that thought is thrown around all over the place, the, the love of Christ, and, and then Christ came and was born because of his love for us. And so then I start thinking further and further, how would I then go, if somebody said, I, you have to now teach on or preach on the love of God, just as a generic wide open reality, the love of God, the love of God for his people, where do you start? How do you begin? And I couldn't help but be drawn to the text that we read just a minute ago, John 1, 14, the word of God, or the word, rather the capital W word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then I started thinking about all the different ways that Jesus has dwelt among us. The second member of the Trinity has been among his people because we know that God is love and that he does indeed love, but who is this God who loves? And that essence, in part, it's, you, you can't do just one short sermon on all of that, but that essence in part is visible or manifest by his desire to be among his people. And we can trace that from beginning to end in the Bible. His desire and accomplishing of being among his people. The son, the second member of the triune God, took on flesh for one reason. He wanted to be among his people. Why did he want to be among his people? Because he loved them. There's no other reason. 
So there are many times before the incarnation, before the, the passage that we read earlier, the Matthew 1 and 2 and, and Luke 1 and 2 passages, there's lots of moments in the Bible before that where the pre-incarnate, so before flesh, son of God, is descending to earth to be among his people because he wanted to. And he wanted to for no other reason, but he loved them. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to go through the scriptures and we're going to look at this and we're going to see if we cannot discern and prove the love of God for his people by his desire and the achievement of being among them. And I'm going to be reading out of the Legacy Standard Version because in the Old Testament, it translates the capital L-O-R-D as Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And that makes a few passages just really pop out. So I wanted you to give you a heads up before that. So let's look at God among us in what we can call the covenant of works. So that's Genesis 1 and 2, before, or 1, 2, and 3, before sin comes in and changes everything. Look at Genesis 3, verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Now, we're not getting into the sin and why they're hiding per se, but what we are getting into is the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden. Now, that opens up a can of worms that we don't have time to go anywhere with because God's in one place and God's making footsteps, even though he is spirit and those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. So there's so much going on there that we don't have time to unpack. But here's the reality is that God showed up to an appointment and Adam and Eve weren't there. So in the garden, in the perfect scenario, in up until this point, a sinless reality, what was God doing every day? Being among his people. He, in a sense, he said, I've created you to love you so that I can be among you. And that was his practice until we sinned and ruined that connection. But he's not going to let that stop him from achieving his desires. See, God wanted a people before he created anything. God created in Genesis 1-1, knowing Genesis 3-6 was coming the whole time, planning, decreeing that Genesis 3-6 would come. So God is among his people in the covenant of works and the only two people that have ever experienced the deal where if you don't break the law, you go to heaven and you have the ability to not do that, Adam and Eve. God was among the people. But then we know sin comes in and ruins that. And Genesis 3, 8 continues on, and God is now removing, in a sense, removing his presence from them. They can't go back in the garden. It's guarded by an angel with a flaming sword, and now they're out on their own. Has God given up then on having a people and loving that people enough to be among them? We'll look at Genesis 18. One and two. Now, this is picking up an Abraham story. Abraham's already had three major moments of conversing with God in 12, 15, and 17. But look at what happens in 18. Then Yahweh appeared to him. Who appears to Abraham? Yahweh, the triune God, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, and he lifted up, he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing nearby. He saw, and he ran from the tent 
door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. Now skip ahead, because the point is not the major uh, context of the story, but to get to the among us. Verse 9, then they said to him, the three men, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, they are in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, am I worn out after I am worn out? Shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old too? And verse 13, and Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? So after the reality of God being among his people is ruined by those people, he says, I'm going to come and be among you still because I'm going to come and see you in your, your microscopic form. There's Abraham and then there's Sarah and that's it. There's no baby. There's no people. This is an embryonic form of the people of God. A people has a plural reality. He's made clear that the promises are coming in Genesis 12, 15 and 17, but in verse 18, chapter 18, he comes to him. He is not content to sit back. He is going to come and be right in front of him. And Yahweh said to Abraham, speaks to him. God is still creating a people amongst whom he can dwell because he loves them. There's no other reason. He desires to be among them and he will. And the only motive that's logical at all in our deducing is love. And then you go on, okay, so this, this people does come, Isaac is born, this family stuff happens, and then you go, okay, after some of that stuff happens, and then you get to Isaac's kids, Esau and Jacob, and that whole thing's a wreck because Isaac won't do exactly what God said, and Jacob gets the promised blessing, even though he had to kind of steal it, and Esau's a dirtbag who doesn't even want anything to do with it, and then you get to this problem where Jacob is kind of running away, kind of figuring out what happens, and then in Genesis 32... Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. And he saw that he had not prevailed against him. Yeah, it took you all night. You haven't won yet. You finally figured that out, Jacob. So he touched the socket of his thigh. And so the socket of Jacob's thighs was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. Why did you name the place Peniel, Jacob? Because I have seen God face to face. (coughs) Yet my life has been delivered. I have seen God face to face. This here is a pre-incarnate Christ that Jacob wrestles with and he gets it. Why at all would pre-incarnate Christ before, centuries before Mary and Joseph, why would you go and mess with Jacob? Because he's this sinful rascal. Nevertheless, the people that God is building is coming through him. And I'm going to go be near him and be with him because I love him. I'm not going to let him go and just drift and do his own thing. So he does. And then you get to 
That's pre-Old Covenant. Then you get to the Old Covenant with Moses. Now, Moses is, is a drastically different kind of scenario than the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because now Moses immediately has a people. He's the new leader, the new spokesman for God, and he's got a couple million people. They're a big old people now. So God's going to take them out of Egypt and then organize them, and he's organizing them for one primary reason, to dwell among them. Exodus 25, verse 8, let them make a sanctuary for me, why? That I may dwell among them. I I brought you out for all of these reasons, but here's the deal. I can't be among you when you're owned by somebody else and you are owned by Pharaoh. So I'm gonna deliver you out. And then before he even gets that far down the road and explaining all of the big laws that are gonna go into the old covenant, he says, you gotta build me a sanctuary so I can be right in the middle of you. And that's where it was to be. The camps were set up all around by tribe around the sanctuary so that God is in the middle of them, dwelling among them in that sanctuary. And then it happens at the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, meaning God's cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Tabernacle just means religious tent, fills it. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Can you imagine that moment? We've been this people that we don't really know who we are. We kind of know that we're different from Egypt for a couple of different reasons, but we don't know a whole lot. Then this new leader comes. These 10 horrible plagues come on them and not on us. Now we're out. He tells us to build a tent. And then before we can even get the tent totally built, we decide that Moses is taking too long on the mountain. So we tell his brother Aaron, hey, Moses is never coming back. Can you make for us new gods? And Aaron goes, sure. Just throw some stuff into the fire. We'll make a calf out of that whole thing. And God still, after all that, comes to the end of the book and says, I'm still going to be among you. What is the reason? Why would he be among a people like that? And a people that he knows coming in the next books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, none of them are going to go into the the promised land because they're all going to rebel against him on some level. But yet still... I will be among my people. I am making a people and I will be among them. And the only motive that could possibly make any sense is because he loved them. There's no other reason. And as they come into that promised land after everybody, uh, except for Joshua and Caleb's, uh, those individuals and their families, they've all been, they've all died in the wilderness because of unbelief. Joshua is now leading them in in front of Jericho, this moment happened. It doesn't get a lot of press, but yet here we begin. We see a pre-incarnate Jesus. Joshua 5, verse 13. Now it happened when Joshua was by Jericho and he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So Joshua sees a guy with a sword drawn and just goes right up to him and says, who are you with? In verse 14, he said, no, rather I indeed come now as the commander of the host of Yahweh. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his slave? The commander of the host of Yahweh said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. 
and Joshua did so. They're about to enter the land. They, they are a broken people, a corrupted people in so many ways. But then a pre-incarnate Jesus comes to Joshua and says to him, I'm still with you. I'm still among you. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken my promises and I'm going to be with you. He's with him. He gives him a Moses moment of the holy ground. Take your sandals off. God among his people. He's fulfilling his promise of a place for his elect people, and he's showing them that I'm still with you. If time permitted, we would look at Gideon in Judges chapter 6. You look at the book of Judges, the whole thing is a disaster. You read that, there really aren't any heroes. Gideon and Samson are not really that great of guys, and they're the top two. Deborah's maybe the best, and she's a woman. Maybe that says something. But everybody else is pretty much, it just gets worse and worse. Each new judge is worse than the first or the one before them. And in the middle of that, in Judges chapter six, the angel of Yahweh, a pre-incarnate Jesus that allows sacrifices to be made to him, comes to Gideon. And yet, even though people are so wretched and so sinful, and they just keep rebelling against him in the land that he gave to them, he keeps saying, I'm not outside of you. I am among you. I'm here with you because no other reason he won't let them go. Why? Because he loves them. And then if things get so bad and you skip over from Judges to the book of Daniel. And in between there, what you have is you have just more rebellion. You get kings, you have a couple of good ones, David being the best, and then Josiah being the second best at the very end. And then the people are still so bad, God says, I'm gonna have to fulfill my promise, which I made to you in the book of Deuteronomy, that if you sin against me, I'm gonna pull you out of this land. You're not gonna have it anymore. So they get exiled and they all get yanked out. Now that would be the time if you were ever gonna say, God is done with them, he no longer wants to be around them, his love is complete, it's over. But what happens to physically be among them? A story we all know. In Daniel 3, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and the image of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered and said to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. If you don't know the story, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon and he's captured all of these Israelites and they've come out there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are are Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. They're Jewish boys who have been made into these high-ranking prefects in the kingdom of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar gets this idea, I'm gonna make a golden statue, likely of himself. Everybody, when you hear the music, bow down and worship it. Those three wouldn't bow down. They get ratted out by their jealous colleagues. And then Nebuchadnezzar says to them, we're gonna burn you alive because you won't obey. And he throws them in the fire. The fire's so hot seven times hotter than it was before, that the guys throwing those three men into the fire, they got burned up and killed. And so then when they're in the fire, they look in and he answered, verse 25, and said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods or a son of God a pre-incarnate Christ amongst his exiled people. They deserve all of this suffering, all of this pain, 
all of this turmoil. They deserve to be abandoned. Nevertheless, there's three faithful men. And when they get tossed in, the pre-incarnate Jesus goes in with them, among them, visible to everybody else for no other reason. Why would you go be around this rebellious, spiteful people? Because he loves them. That's why he's going to be with them and be around them. And you get to the end, of the, New Te- the end of the Old Testament right there, and then you start thinking about, you've seen a lot of ancient history. You've seen a lot of different other types of religions. And it's interesting that whenever you go anywhere that's not highly educated, everybody's extremely religious. You have to educate somebody to make them an atheist because everybody innately worships something. And all over the Old Testament, you see all these different false deities, right? Dagon, Molech, Baal, Ashtaroth, on and on and on. There's all these false deities that are of different peoples, the Philistines, the the Babylonians, um, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, I mean, all down the list. All these false deities, and then you read them and you look about them, and not a single one of them chose to be among their people. First, because they're not real, but secondly, even in their own um, stories, backstories, None of them were like, we're coming to you because you need us and I love you even though you don't know me. No, those people are all like, we figured out that Dagon or Baal or Molech is God. We built a statue that we think looks like him. And then now we're hoping that he's not super mad at us. That's all the deities that you see before, completely unlike Yahweh who says, I'm making you a people. I'm sustaining you as a people. And of my own volition, I'm going to be among you as my people. There's a refrain that gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will dwell among them. No other deity has ever said that. No other deity in any other world religion has ever said that. Allah doesn't give a rip about anybody but himself. He doesn't come and condescend down to be with Muslims. If you want to get what you want, then you got to come to him. But he doesn't need you or care about you at all. You should just care about him. The Hindu gods, that pantheon of unending lists of made-up deities, they'd all be fine if there were no Hindus. They'd just be going on just fine and dandy. Everything would be the same. And here's the strange thing. I've had more conversations in the past three months than I've had in the past 30 years about Norse paganism. Not kidding. There, I was, we were on a pastor's call the other day, and there was a chaplain, a military chaplain, who's saying there are, we're having to deal with more soldiers identifying as Norse pagans who want an exemption to not shave their faces for religious purposes. And that's just one example. of. And then you go and read all these Norse pagan gods. Where were they? For the past like 500 years, nobody cared until you dug up their books. And now they don't care about being with you. They don't have a desire to make a people. None of that. None of these false religions ever have. But the God of the Bible has a plan and always has before the foundation of the world to build a people and to be among them for no reason, but he loves them. 
And he says at the end of the Old Testament, he said before the foundation of the world, but he says in scripture at the end of the Old Testament, I'm, I'm done with temporary visitations. I'm done with just kind of coming, you know, in the fire or visiting Abraham or visiting Gideon. I'm going to make this deal permanent. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days. This is the new covenant that Jesus talks about. Declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. The parallel passage to that is Ezekiel 36, where he says, I'm gonna put my spirit in them and dwell among them. My spirit's no longer gonna be in a tabernacle outside, it's gonna be inside them. The law that I've written, the very word that comes and emanates from me is no longer gonna be written on stone outside, I'm gonna put it inside of them. This promised permanence is coming. God loves his people so much that he must make his dwelling among them irreversible, intimate, meaning near and up close, and unquestionable, meaning you can't deny it. Irreversible, intimate, and unquestionable. And then, in the fulfillment of that Jeremiah 31 passage, you have Matthew 1. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, not by any other man. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then here's where we're getting to what we've been building towards. And she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. And that name Jesus has a reason. Why are you calling him Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. What people will he save from sins? His people. Only his people. That love is directed towards one people. Now, all this took place, verse 21, in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet will be fulfilled. And now he's going back to the Old Testament. Now, a book we skipped, Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. What are they going to call his name? His name is Jesus, but Jesus has many names. This one is Emmanuel. And what does it mean when you translate it? God with us. God with us among us. That's who he's going to be. If God's going to be among them permanently, as was his stated desire, he's got to deal first with their sins. See, the temporary reality of the Old Testament is he's coming in in moments, but he's not with them in a permanent sense intimately because their sins have not yet been paid for. They've been pushed down the line every time you get to Yom Kippur and Leviticus 16 and 17, uh, and you have the Day of Atonement, then you kick the can down the road one more year, and then one more year, and then one more year, but it hasn't been fully paid for. Those sins got to be dealt with. But if Jesus is the one who's going to come and deal with those sins, save them from those sins, not just push them off, 
but save him completely from those sins, then he has to deal with them through a death. And it has to be a death that's once for all, not a repeatable death. That's why when you read the book of Hebrews and you see once for all, you should mark it because it's pointing out that this was once for all. Now he can forever be Emmanuel, God with us. Now he is not your Emmanuel if you remain unrepentant and dead in sins. Those who are in their sins are not his people. Those who have cried out for forgiveness and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, they are his people. Now, I don't know why you came here today. Maybe you came with a friend or a a family member or whoever it is. But today is the moment to have your sins forgiven, to obtain eternal life. No one is too sinful to be loved by Christ. That's the point of Emmanuel. But only those who have faith in Jesus will be saved. So you call out to him right now. And that Emmanuel, that God with us will include you because he is permanently among us. 2 Corinthians 6.16 would tell us that. In the middle of a bigger argument, Paul brings this up and says, on what agreement or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? And then he gets into the concept that we're dealing with. For we are a sanctuary of the living God. We, the church, the individuals in the church and the church herself are a sanctuary of the living God. And then he says, Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How do we know? How do we know that we know that God, that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, how do we know that that triune God loves his people? Because he forced us himself on us. He dwells among us. It wasn't our idea. We didn't collaborate with him. We are a sanctuary of God because he made us that. And he made us that for no other reason but he loved us. But he loved us. Now, as we end, have those texts left any room for us glorifying ourselves. I mean, you look at that, and that was just like the big ones. And going through the whole Bible, what did any of us, us meaning the people of God throughout all time and all history, what did any of us do to bring those, those visitations and then now the permanent dwelling, what do we do to bring it about? Nothing. The only thing that we contributed to that whole equation was sin. We are just the receivers of God's gracious, loving presence. We just received that. We reject his love and despise his presence. Nevertheless, we are the recipients. We are the ones who are given new hearts. We are the ones who have the hearts of stone taken out, hearts of flesh put in, and the law of God written on them. And now we want to obey God from our heart because he dwells within us. So then what else could we do but worship him? What else could we do but worship and obey him? That's why Paul says that it's, it's your most logical service of worship in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's the only thing that makes sense. 
If you're the recipient of all of that love and you can't do anything to earn it, you can't do anything to maintain it, and you do nothing to, to freshen it up or to keep it going, then what do you do? You just worship that one who has always desired and achieved dwelling among his people. And you count yourself blessed beyond all measure that you are among those people. We worship, we, we bind ourselves to the horns of the altar, as it says. The problem with living sacrifices in Romans 12 too, if you put a live animal on a sacrificial altar, what is it gonna do? It's gonna jump off. That's the problem with a living sacrifice. You can get up and get off. So then what do we do? You take the cords, the festal cords they're called in Leviticus, and you tie yourself onto it that I will worship this God and I will obey this God and I won't move one inch from doing that. There's nothing else that I can do. We give all of who you are as a living sacrifice to the almighty God whose unceasing persistence in loving us enough to create a permanent dwelling among us was achieved. And in that process, he secured our dwelling with him. That our dwelling with him is gonna be in a heavenly city that Hebrews says has no foundations. Foundation is not made with human hands. But that celestial city will be there forever. That's why John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's why that verse is so deeply meaningful to us because he dwelt among us for no other reason, but he loved us. Let me pray. Father, the truths that we looked at this evening were more profound than the preacher could possibly do justice to. Would you take the truth therein? Would you take the scriptures read? Then would you apply it to all of our hearts? Would you, would you create a hunger or, or, or expand and deepen a hunger in us to know you more, to know you further and more clearly? Would we, would we be refreshed? Uh, not, not that your love towards us needs to be refreshed, but our, our commitment as sacrifices on the altar to be refreshed, that we wouldn't want to move one inch outside of your will, outside of living a life of praise to you. And Lord, will we take the time with you know, a couple of days off here and there in the next week or so to, to spend it in thought, to spend it in, in pondering and meditating upon your truths. We know that that's what's gonna make us like oaks by a river that don't move and never dry out. And may we be a people that doesn't remain content with quippy sayings, though they be true. May we be explorers who will want to go down into the depths of that brilliant, shining cavern to know what is there and to know the truth. Lord, thank you for making us into a people. And that us includes all people who have been saved by faith in your son, Jesus, from 
Abel all the way till the end of time when you call your last sheep home. And thank you for making us a people here, just a little pocket of the present day. We know that there are brothers and sisters in our town, not a part of our church, and in our state and our country. We know there are brothers and sisters all over the world that are worshiping right now. Some are hiding and whispering. Some are having to check at the door to see if this person is a spy or not that will turn them into the government. But Lord, we are all one people that you have made. And we long for the day when all of those voices that John could only describe as roaring waters are heard, praising your name, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Bring us speedily towards that day and carry us in faithfulness here with what you've given us to do. We pray that this worship this afternoon, this evening was pleasing to you. Lord, please use it to build us up. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.